Welcome to another episode of Pocket Law Talks. This is your host, Brad. Across the way is producer Devin. Hey, yo. I got Pluto with me today, too. Yeah, we got the little dog in here. He's sound asleep. We'll see. He's if, more uh, than a dog. He's my son. <laughs> He's a good, good little pup. That uh, we're doing a follow up episode to our last episode where we touched a little bit on the. Well, we dove into the life of a, 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 a prior Thanks, homeless man. gentleman. Yeah. Uh, well, no longer homeless. Right. 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 Uh, John Powell, and we're going to do a little follow up. Tie that into a little bit of how that population especially is disproportionately involved in the criminal justice system throw some stats your way have a little discussion about that and and then in a in a couple of weeks we're going to do another sort of episode to put a bow on all of it where we can look at um how they're what an organization here in Indianapolis is trying to do to get uh, that problem uh, at least the need that's been unmet and so we're going to dissect this out for you guys and really, some of these stats are going to be pretty surprising, honestly. Like, it honestly blows your mind. And if you really think about it, a lot of these stats that we're going to give you are under undervalued, honestly, because, you know, a lot of homeless people, they either have warrants or they're undocumented, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of these stats aren't specific to Indianapolis. They are either worldwide or in specific states. But anybody who's been downtown knows that we have a significant homeless population. Like, we have tent cities here. And, you know, it may not be as obvious as it is in a place like Los Angeles or New York City, but we definitely have that issue here. And it's a it's an underserved need. And it is definitely something that these people deal with all the time. And a lot of people are so quick to just kick them under the rug, try not to look at them. They think they're junkies. They think they're criminals. And, you know, when when you have literally nothing to lose, sometimes it's easy to become a criminal and to steal to to survive. But a lot of these people are just down on their luck and they're trying to get their shit together and you offer them a handout and they'll definitely take it and they'll run with it and they'll get their life together. That's not saying that there aren't people who chose to choose to be homeless either. There definitely is. There's those people that are just chronically lazy, but you can, there's no way that that's mostly the vast population. Like it's just not talk, talking to any homeless man and you'll know that's the case. A lot of it is also severe mental illness as well. I used to do outreach downtown and You'd ask these people their story, and they'd give you a real heartbreaking story. You come back a week later, and they give you a whole different story. You know, you look at that as, are they lying? Of course they are, but they're also severely mentally ill. If they weren't before they became homeless, they definitely became while they were homeless with the constant stressors of being out on the street, the terrible things that have happened to them, and the shit that they've seen. Yeah, and, and I want to give a little shout-out to um, the discussion we're going to have today is going to be sourced a lot from an article that was written back in September of 2020 called Five Charts to Explain Homelessness, the Jail Cycle, and How to Break It. Uh, research and analysis was done by Sarah Gillespie and Samantha Batko and uh, written by Emily Pfeiffer. So I want to give them a little shout out for some of the info we're going to share with you today. When you look at it, um, there's a lot of crimes that are sort of petty that lead to the, the, the homelessness getting involved in the criminal justice system. So it's things like anti-loitering laws, um, laws that have been designed to write or violate tickets for sleeping in parks, things of that nature. Which, of course, you know, these are laws that we do need as a society, but sometimes it feels like they are directly to affect the homeless people. I mean, how often is someone not homeless going to sleep in a park unless you accidentally fall asleep or something? But regardless, you're not going to be pitching a tent and staying there all night. So, you know, 
there's an understanding on why these laws exist, but there should just uh, it just seems wrong to criminalize and penalize these people instead of offering them support because these are people that's been kicked their entire lives, and here you are kicking them again, and they're just trying to get some damn sleep. Yeah, and the, uh, where this is it, this is truly like a cyclical thing because. Uh, a lot of the home people that become homeless is are becoming homeless because they just got out of the jail system. A lot of people that are in homeless that are maybe started out homeless for other reasons end up in the jail system, then they come back out, and their situation is worse than it was even before they went in, and it just becomes a cyclical thing. In in the jail, back on the streets. In the jail, back on the streets. Um, I mean, think of how easy it is to become homeless. Let's say. Let's say you have a roommate or something, or maybe you have a son, whatever it is, and they do something criminal and police come to your house. Well, your landlord doesn't like that. The banks don't like that. Even if you are paying off your house on a mortgage, the banks really don't fucking like that. So they kick you out. Well, you have a little bit of money saved up, but you don't have money to get a house. Now you have a criminal record, so you can't get an apartment. You went from being a peaceful, happy family to immediately being out on the streets with you know, basically all your stuff in a storage unit if you can afford it. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're even more fucked. That doesn't include the attorney fees that you're going to pay for whoever got in trouble, even if it's yourself, the bail, the commissary, all of that stuff. So it's so easy to have your life together and then get arrested and be out literally the bottom of the barrel. Well, and it's a t- and it, and, and, I mean, it's a, it's a tough conundrum and, and understandable from the business side of it too. I mean, if you're the owner or manager of an apartment complex, obviously you want to keep a safe community where people are going to want to rent from you and um, you know, if you're allowing some uh, a large population of people who have been in prison to rent from you, then you know that word starts getting around, and it can affect your ability to rent your apartment. So you, you, you understand the motive behind it, but there should be some middle ground where there's some opportunities for people to get back on their feet to to take a little bit closer look at this and and how the statistics really play out. More than fifty thousand people every year enter shelters directly from a prison facility. So think about that. Every year, the size of a small town goes from prison to homeless shelter. Um, And that doesn't include the people who live outside immediately after incarceration and then find a homeless shelter or they have a period of instability and then go to a homeless shelter. Like I said, you know, maybe you get out of jail and you're at your house for a week or two or maybe even a month or two and then your landlord or the bank finds out that you got arrested and now you're kicked out and then you go to a shelter. That number doesn't include anything like that. That just includes the people who got released from the jail and walked their asses to the uh, to the shelter. Yeah, and uh, the community transition programs that have been placed been put in place at the prisons are – better than what used to be there. It used to be literally once you finished a prison sentence, they handed you your whatever stuff, whatever property you had, you checked in, and they, they put you out on the street. They now do do go through what's called CTP or Community Transition Program where they do try to put a plan in place for you on to what you're going to do next. But unfortunately for many of the people, that plan is to go to a homeless shelter. Don't a lot of them also offer like halfway houses and such? Yeah, there's there's a, a whole slew of opportunities that they've created, but some of the places have waiting lists. Some of them have qualifications in terms of what kind of criminal history you can have to be able to qualify for the program. And there's sometimes limitations on, obviously, if you're from Podunk, Indiana, with this town of five thousand people, mm-hmm. there's gonna be no programs for you in right. those little towns. So if you're going back to those little towns, you're probably don't have anywhere to go. Something I learned with the working with the Dream Center, if you have any criminal record, uh, especially related to drugs, anything like that, um, I know like really minor crimes don't fit this, but any drug, whether it's a minor or <clears throat> serious crime, any 
violent crime, anything like that, you no longer qualify for Section 8 housing. So you could be someone who has been out of that life for five, six years, but and you're not eligible for expungement yet, and yet you don't qualify for Section 8, you don't qualify for any assistance, you know, and you're, you're just completely fucked. Like, you're just... Yeah, if you don't have family or friends willing to take you in, it's a tough situation because if you can't qualify for Section 8 housing, you're not qualifying for private uh, rentals. If you can find a landlord that is renting... Um, Which is harder to find nowadays, private landlords. Yeah, because the conglomerates have taken over so much of it. But if you can find one that's renting and we're willing to rent to a person with that kind of a record, you're probably going to be in not the greatest neighborhood. So then you're also getting put back right in the right. same environment right you came out of. in the same environment. You're more likely to be a victim of a crime. And I mean, especially I feel like the the as more generations pass, uh, the family structure becomes less nuclear and it starts to become more fractured. I mean, right. I feel like the people that come from broken homes is greatly higher than the people that came from broken homes in your generation. Yeah. And, well, I think there's a lot of that has been a change in the dynamics of just society in general. I mean, the generation before me, most of the mothers didn't work outside the home, period. Right. And so they were literally dedicated their whole lives to just the family and nothing else. And so then you've transitioned to it and rightfully so I'm not saying in any way that we should be going back to the olden days, but now you've got a, a transition into a, a situation where um, there's not a breadwinner and, and a homemaker. You now have usually two, many times two breadwinners, people that can sustain themselves independently. Or there's also, you know, there used to be a stigma that came with being a single mother. It was, Right, you were ashamed, and and a lot of times you would be, um, you know, sometimes the parents would actually secretly have let the kid have the baby, and then the the grandparents would act like it was theirs. I mean, that's how extreme it was. I mean, even uh, people would would hide the fact that they got pregnant outside of marriage and try to get married real quick so that you could see that didn't. Well, those aren't good foundations, no, uh, for for relationships. But now it's not considered a big deal. To, to be a single parent, but you know, you are setting it up without some of the growth and, and examples that a parent can set for a kid aren't are necessarily there anymore. It's funny because we had this exact conversation in my economics class and, you know, he was kind of make, making a more cynical view that because women are working, the homes are more fractured. And if you think about it, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, I definitely think women should be able to have the ability to work too. I honestly don't even think that's the biggest issue. I think the biggest issue. Well, you is could say the flip media. side and say the men working are causing them to be fractured. Well, yeah, <laughs> like just at that much point, as the women are. Yeah, at that point, it's either one. I honestly think social media is what's causing the biggest issue because there's so much availability out there. No longer is the woman trapped at home with no ability to leave because she doesn't have her own money and she's forced to take care of a family. Um, now she can up and leave whenever she wants. And if that was just the case, it probably wouldn't be as common as it is. But when you have access to social media and instant gratification, and especially being a woman, you have a million dudes underneath your pictures that you could go take a spin with anytime you want. You know, it's so easy to just find someone else. You know, Ashley Madison literally fucking exists. Like, it's well, yeah, crazy that is, that even exists. For those who don't know, Ashley Madison is specifically designed for married people to go meet people. Right. That aren't their spouse. Yeah. <laughs> and, and have sexual relations with them. That's obviously a huge different dynamic than what has been there the last 30 years. It's changed the fabric of society for sure. And, and yeah, lots of more instability. To get back on the, a little bit more on the topic, what we're looking at, one of the statistics that jumps off the page is the correlation between 
um, incarceration and, and, and homelessness. homelessness. Yeah. The prison policy initiative found that people who've been incarcerated just more than one time, so two times or more, makes them 13 times more likely than the general public to experience homelessness. Now, if they've been incarcerated just once, just one time, then they are seven times more likely to become homeless. However, that only includes people incarcerated in prisons. Actually, not prison, jails. not jail. Yeah, right. not doesn't include jail. So once again, that number could be a lot higher. And it just shows how incarceration and homelessness kind of comes hand in hand. So if the general public, out of 10,000 people, 21 people would experience homelessness. If you've been incarcerated If they had been incarcerated. If, if you, Somebody's never been incarcerated. Yeah, yeah. Right. They've never been incarcerated. If you've been incarcerated once, that number jumps up to 141 out of 10,000. And if you've been incarcerated more than once, that jumps up to 279. That is a 13.3% increase from the lowest number to the highest number. So, I mean, you literally more than 10 times are more likely to get to, to become homeless if you get incarcerated more than once. And this this isn't saying massive crimes like... You know, you go do something and then you go sit in jail for or prison for six years and then you're out for a year and then you go do something else for 10 years. These are people that maybe just spend a night or two in jail once or twice or three Well, times. prison, it'd have to be more substantial. You'd well, be, right. You'd be looking at at least I mean, a, a low-level felony. Like but a it year. Could be, it could be, nah, it could even be six months. Right. I mean, it, it, prison sentences in Indiana can, can be as short as six months. So you can fall into that criteria within a period of two years and in two years of your life going from being completely perfect to you're on the verge of homelessness, or maybe you were always on the verge of homelessness. You can just see how quickly that can spiral out of control for someone. And once you're at the bottom, you know, people always say, pull your bootstraps up. But what if you don't have boots that have straps to pull up? Like there's nothing to pull up. I don't have any support network around you at all. The, the, yeah. And, and the criminal justice system, at least here in Indiana has gotten better. I mean, it was not uncommon for somebody to, to have committed a felony theft, which, is, uh, is stealing something only over $750 to do prison time, not even 15 years ago. Nowadays, that's likely to be pled down to a misdemeanor, or at least a decent chance of that, and you're not going to do any prison time. So there's been an evolution. I think people are starting to see that prison is not reformative. It's probably the other way around. It, it undoes people's lives in a, in, a, in a way. There's a place for it. Obviously, people that are you know, doing violent crimes and causing a lot of problems Shouldn't be allowed to just continue to do that and be free in society. But if you can avoid it on the low-level crimes and try to get people resources and help and get them back on their feet, that's going to show a lot better outcome. The um, another st- another statistic. This statistic right here is, is crazy. crazy. Yeah. yeah, according to the California Policy Lab, people experiencing unsheltered homelessness who were surveyed between 2015 and 2017 reported an average of 21 contacts with police in the past six months. Ten times the number reported by people living in shelters. People experiencing unsheltered homelessness were also nine times more likely than people in shelters to report having spent at least one night in jail the past six months. So that's an encounter with police every eight or so days. And, you know, there's there's these laws that we talk about that are obviously needed, but it's like criminalizing homelessness. You know, issuing citations and arrests for minor, quote-unquote, public nuisance crimes, such as camping, loitering, public urination— and that people wouldn't even have to do if they had somewhere to call home. You know what I mean? So Yeah, I think that's what the jumps out on this statistic is that the stark difference between just being in a shelter versus being on the street, that little just tiny bit of extra sense of place, 
right? Because right. you have a shelter. Shelter's not like living in a lack lap of luxury. I mean, you're living in bunks. With I mean, like a you bunch said of other the other people. episode, it's basically like prison. Yeah, I mean, there's strict rules. You're being fed whatever's being fed that day, and you're sleeping in a bunk room with probably another 25, 30 people at least. So, but just that sense of of a safe place to go, a place to lay your head down that's reliable. Uh, something to even call home to a certain degree. I mean, I think uh, John the other day said he lived there for three years. I mean, that's home at that point. Yeah, no, they go to the same place every time. He said he went right. to the same corner, you know, at that, and that, that's his block at that point. You know what I mean? But and just to show how much that little bit of stability can change somebody's yeah, interactions with law enforcement. Yeah, it makes you feel comfortable, and you're not it's having crazy. a different environment all the time. I did the math on these on these stats. So this is between the, the difference between unsheltered people and sheltered people. So these people are both still both homeless. homeless. Both homeless, but one are in a shelter and one is not. And this is their average number of interactions in the previous six months. So in a six-month span, you are likely, if you are unsheltered versus sheltered, you are ten and a half times more likely to have experiences with police if you are unsheltered. You are seven times more likely to have a jail spell. You are two times more likely to have a visit to the ER. And you are three times more likely to need an ambulance ride if you are unsheltered versus sheltered. Well, if you if you take that uh, and extrapolate it out, if you look at the cost of having somebody on taxpayers unsheltered versus sheltered, you know, just the police contacts alone. I mean, ten and a half more times, ten and a half more police contacts in a six month period just for that population. Yeah. And if you provide them a safe place to lay their head. You know, you're cutting costs in other areas. Denver, Colorado actually did the math on this. They previously calculated that providing safety net services to 250 people experiencing long-term homelessness and cycling in and out of jail and other emergency services cost the city an average of $7.3 million a year. Los Angeles found that people experiencing homelessness accounted for $65.5 million in jail costs and $5.6 million in booking fees in the 2014 to 2015 fiscal year. In Denver, where urban is, and urban is like their, uh, it's like their science, it's their research firm and uh, researching the urban environment. They were evaluating the city's supportive housing social impact bond initiative. A person experiencing long-term homelessness in 2014 and 2016 had 24 contacts with police over 90 days, including four citations, one arrest, one jail stay, and 18 other kinds of contacts, such as being ordered to move along. This 90-day period cost the city nearly $4,000 and represents the experience of just one person among the hundreds in Denver stuck in the homelessness jail cycle. That's yeah, so a lot of money. $4,000, essentially a quarter. So you're looking at a total of sixteen grand a year just for that one, one, one homeless person. person. So you take that same person and you give them some sort of basic shelter, you're cutting their contacts with police by tenfold. You know, look, that that $16,000 number, if you're putting them in a shelter, I mean, if you look at the cost per sheltering a person per person, it's got to be less than that. Well, what's crazy, too, is those numbers are just related to, like, the status quo. That's that person being in decent health, you know, having just encounters with the police. But the longer you're homeless, the more likely you are to have some serious medical issues. And that doesn't include some massive hospital stay that requires thousands of dollars that you're not paying because you're homeless. You know what I mean? And that well, burden yeah. gets shifted onto the taxpayers and onto the hospital infrastructure and their facilities. And that can take away from people who aren't unsheltered. Not that they're any less deserving of it at all, but it just puts a further strain on the system that doesn't necessarily need to exist. 
Yeah, they broke that broke that uh, $4,000 down in a little bit more detail. That's counting for $80 for one day in jail, $430 for the process of going through an arrest, $700 for the citations that were issued, and then $2,700 for the other 18 um, police contacts that were made in some fashion. You know, you're looking at the cost of law enforcement to be in the present, spending their time yeah. dealing with these issues as opposed to, you know, trying to prevent violent crime. And, and the cost of, of booking fees, cost of using the facility. So New York City, they actually wanted to figure out the cost difference, what they can save, what the differences would be. So they had, um, it, it was called the Frequent User Service Enhancement Supp- Supportive Housing Program. And it was in New York City. It found that after two years, 86% of participants remained housed compared with only 42% of the comparison group who didn't receive supportive housing services, and they spent 40% less time in jail. The annual jail and shelter costs for each person in supportive housing were more than $8,000 lower than for the comparison group, and their crisis health care costs were more than $7,000 lower. The Frequent User Service Enhancement Program costs roughly $23,000 a person in total annual public funding. But 67% of that cost was offset by nearly $16,000 average annual reduction in jail, shelter, and crisis health care costs. This shows that supportive housing can help people improve their lives while offsetting some public costs by mitigating the homelessness, jail cycles, harmful consequences. Yeah, and, and if you take a look at the just the you know savings of $16,000 a year, what you're having to put into uh, that program over the top of that, you're what at... Seven thousand dollars a year. Yeah, it's only seven thousand difference, and that seven grand, which people spend when they take on vacation, and could easily be pulled in by. I mean, I'm I, I fucking hate taxes. Don't get me wrong, but it can be pulled. <laughs> that money can be found. Those expensive office chairs, you know, in the courthouse or whatever the hell they are, that that money can be found. And these are people's lives you're talking about. It's so easy to, you know, as a as a coping mechanism, our brain looks at them as less than, as different than us. You know, it's it's the same thing like when we're in war. You look at the enemy as being savages and barbarians, but these are these are fucking people. You know what I mean? Like they, they are the same as you and I. They're just in a different situation. They had a different life. They have a different mindset, and they've been through a hell of a lot more different shit than you have been. Well, and yeah, yeah, you don't know what uh, what I think. Um, I mean, what was it? John was telling us in that in the last episode. His, uh, I mean, I think he hardly lived with either parent. He bounced around with other family members, friends. Yeah, even, even when he was a child, he was bouncing around, and he, you know, he wasn't living with his parents. I think he said his. I, I don't want to be like be wrong, but I think he said his parents were drug users. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and I, I understand. Like there were plenty of times where very short stays, but I was homeless as a kid. Not not necessarily homeless in the sense that I was on the street, but I was sleeping on someone's couch. I didn't have a my own place. I would just have all my shit in a trash bag or stuffed in a corner. To me, that fits the definition of homeless, you know, because I'm at the whims of these people to kick me out whenever they want. Um, and even after graduating, there had been a few bumps in the road here and there. And luckily, I had a, an amazing support circle that was able to pull me out of it and help me also pull myself out of it. Uh, because, you know, like I said, you can't pull yourself up if the walls are slick. You know, there's nothing to latch onto. There's nothing to pull up with. You need to pull yourself up. There needs to be an opposite force to you know, allow you to move upwards. It's physics, but in the metaphorical sense of someone's social positioning. Well, we say that we, you hear the term and we use this in American culture all the time. It takes a village. Uh, but then sometimes we forget that means a village doesn't mean, Hey, it's that 
family person, you know, that's, it's that person's family's responsibility. It's that person that has to do X, Y, or Z on their own. When we, when you say it takes a village, that's exactly what it means. Sometimes it takes a, it takes a village. It takes a, and that's one thing I would say is different about society, probably in a negative way now than what it was back, um, in the earlier days. If, if, um, you know, and this still happens some, but this is how it happened all the time. I mean, in, in the, I'd say, especially in the seventies, eighties, even back in early, earlier than that, for sure too. If somebody was like experiencing homelessness because their house was caught on fire or their parents died or whatever it is, whatever tragedy, tragedy has hit. Some neighbor would step up and say, Hey, come stay by my place. You know, that's something that I really, really admire about other cultures, too. And we really lack in, you know, in America in general, you know, the Hispanic culture, even even black Americans. Like, I feel like they're just so much more connected with their family. They're so much they, they really have that village dynamic. You know, they really lean on each other. But the village doesn't mean family either. I no, mean, there right. would be literally, um, especially in a smaller town, if somebody's somebody had fell on hard times and it was something that. You know, especially a tragic event or something. In most of this, most of these situations, like John's situation, where never had parents that really were given an effort or putting putting anything into him, there would be other people step up and and helping that. And and or, you know, like I said, the house fire, they wouldn't have to go stay in a shelter for a night. They'd be in the right. neighbor's house that day. People are just scared to get burned. You know, you, you may be cool with your neighbor, but would you let him come stay the night with you if he needed it? You know, you may be afraid he's going to steal your shit. He's going to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to have your personal space invaded. Like, we, we've become super selfish as a society. Like, Internet has made us more connected, but not physically connected. Right. That's what I was going to say. I would say that, so, yeah, the social media world, am I in touch or seeing what's going on in people's lives that I would totally have lost contact with, like from high school? hundred percent. Is that a positive? Meh. Probably most of the time. I mean, it's kind of cool to follow, but it also, I think makes it a lot easier for people to be isolated in their own world Mm -hmm. that they, they've got this device that's sort of meeting some of their social needs, uh, where you're interacting with people but many times I don't even know that you're doing it, right? When you're scrolling through somebody's Facebook page and looking at their yeah. stuff or whatever, if you're not liking their post or commenting on it, they, they don't have know no idea that, that you did, did it, it. Yeah. right? But you're still getting sort of that sense of being social interaction uh-huh. that is not the same as going over and sitting down and having dinner with them. You right. know what I mean? And and so I think that's the ne- the negative side of that. that People uh, also put on this facade that, you know, you're not going to post the shitty things you're going through on social media right. like that. I think that's one thing I like about my generation is, like, as much as we get uh, called out on it, we really post everything on social media. The good, the bad, the ugly, the boring <laughs> shit in between. Like, uh, specifically I do on my There's not Snapchat. a lot of filter. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, you can really get an idea of, like, where someone is at in their life. And, you know, there's plenty of us that still only post the good things, only post our vacations and this and that. It really takes a, a level of openness and vulnerability to show when you're going through a hard time. But it's been a huge help for me because I get a lot of people that reach out to me that I never would have known were even watching me. Uh, and, you know, give me words of advice that, you know, especially in specific moments I really needed. Yeah. And, and th- 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 I think through that too, like, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, uh, we lived in a neighborhood of like 12 homes. Everybody knew everybody. Like literally we did not lock, we didn't lock our doors at night. 
did, didn't even, we didn't have a bolt lock on our door at all. We just had the little lock on the, the, the doorknob. And if like we forgot something at home and we needed like a light turned off or something, we would just literally, if you could get a hold of your neighbor, you didn't have cell phones, but if you could call them on the regular phone, you could call them and say, Hey, I left my light on. Can you go in my house and go turn it off for me? If you needed to borrow eggs or sugar or milk, you just went next door and, and did it. Now, I say in social media, like in the neighborhood I currently live in, we have a, a neighborhood group, right, on our, our page. So it's not our neighborhood. It's our street within our neighborhood. Right. And Anybody if, out of that is an outsider, though. Absolutely. And if you want to need to borrow a tool or you need to, uh, some sugar to bake that you don't have, they'll post something on there. Right. And see, and neighbors almost always respond. So I guess to that extent, it's still – uh, it still helps build some of that sense of, of community, but it's not the same as, uh, well, it's also an older generation thing. You know, your generation has grown up with being more attached to those that are around you. I, I always try to be a good neighbor. I try to be open with my neighbors just because that's how I was raised. You know, I was still raised in the area where when you moved in, your neighbors would come bring you cookies as like right. a welcome to the neighborhood type gift. And when, when I'm gone, my neighbor watches my house. When he's gone, I watch his house where we usually text each other like once a week just to check in. And that's something that I can honestly say like my generation probably wouldn't even think to do. Or they might even may not even know their neighbor. Right. Well, they like they wouldn't <laughs> give a shit to know their neighbor. Right. And so I think that's something that's uh, that, that, that that dynamic is, is different. We've gotten sort of sidetracked here, but that that's, you know, when you look at the different fabrics of society, we're talking about getting, uh, you know, the village mentality. That's what these stats are showing us that even if you take somebody that is living under a bridge versus somebody that's living in a shelter, that shelter gives them that sense of community that sense of a village. Right. Even if it may seem like a prison and it may even feel like a prison, you know, you are able to leave whenever you want. You have these people that are in a similar position and know you. You know, you, you there may be crime. There may be sexual assaults. There may be that. It's honestly not. It's not home, right? But it's hell of a lot better than being kicked by people in the street whenever they walk by. You yeah, you know you're going to get fed and you know you're going to have a warm place to lay your head. Right. I mean, that's, that's something. And so these statistics bear that out if you're – in a even the most base, you're being given just a basic shelter of um, care that your outcome is going to be a more positive outcome. Yeah, and so the the coronavirus actually, you know, had a big impact on how police dealt with homelessness. At least, at least while it was going on, I would say it's kind of reverted back to normal. It's on its way back to getting to normal. But this this study said that after COVID-19 hit, police contacts with and arrests of people experiencing long-term homelessness and frequent arrests fell significantly. Between March 11th and March 31st, police had eight fewer interactions a day on average with people in this group compared with the same period in 2019, according, according to the Urban Institute. Urban used a regression analysis of 2019 through 2020 Denver Police Department data that controlled for daily weather, day of the week, month, and year. So they're accounting for if it's raining. They're accounting for if it's cold as hell. They're accounting for all of that. Responses to COVID-19 show that communities can change their law enforcement practices. But as communities respond to and recover from the pandemic, they can go beyond temporary disruptions of the status quo and consider permanent changes to how they address homelessness. So, you know, it, it goes to show that these things can change. And I honestly, I, I think a lot of it was with the shelters because I feel like when – when we were all on lockdown, you know, we weren't supposed to be leaving, but I was leaving anyways because the state's not going to tell me what to do. 
and I didn't really see homeless people. Like, I didn't see fucking nobody. Well, during the COVID, the peak of COVID? Yeah, like I yeah, saw no, nobody. No, nobody was out. Well, and I think that's what this point was. There were jails, jails here in Indiana, that were not taking in new people unless it was a harshly violent crime. Right. And so that's what they were finding in Denver is that things— and the world didn't collapse, did it? Right. Things things didn't really change a lot by the fact that they stopped arresting the homeless population. They, weren't ta- they were trying to keep the homeless population out of the jail because it was— Risk just raising the risk of one, the homeless population getting COVID and spreading it amongst themselves, but also spreading it amongst the people already in jail. So right. they said basically, hey, if it's a low level thing, we're not putting them in jail, period. And it didn't change things significantly in terms of how things were going on in the Society community. Society didn't change. The world didn't collapse. Nobody probably noticed because they weren't even outside to begin with. Right. Yeah. Especially during that, the peak time where everybody was shuttled inside. So yeah, there was a. That was an interesting dynamic with all this was that the COVID sort of showed that, hey, there might be a different way to approach that. And, you know, it, it, we should say uh, this is this is something that we're seeing in chunks. Society is starting to take a little bit of, of notice with like our prisons are now changing the way they do credit time. There's now a, a, you know, a program called a recovery while incarcerated that is literally a uh, a drug treatment center inside of the facility. They have the community transition programs. We're trying to help people. The Marion County, with its new criminal justice system, that's the the, the county that houses Indianapolis, now has a, f- a place where if somebody with mental illness gets arrested, they're taken to a treatment center directly, not to jail. Um, and so there are actively, uh, you know, we have mental health courts now are becoming very predominant within the different counties. Big cities have been doing it longer than the littler cities, but all the littler cities are starting to catch on too. I mean, it just also, it, it comes to funding, you know what I mean? And just think of how much easier it makes the police officers' lives when you don't have to deal with a schizo in your jail who tries to beat the shit out of you every time you go to give him his tray. Like, it, just, it makes everybody's life easier. Well, and, and frees up the resources to be put on the people that are Important committing shit. the violent crimes. Yeah introducing fentanyl into the neighborhoods, things of that nature, stuff that can really uh, affect people in a hugely negative way. So that will wrap up this episode of Pocket Law Talks. When We, we did say, as we mentioned before, we're going to put a wrap on this, go do a little bit deeper dive into what uh, one organization is going to try to do or is in the process of doing to try to um, tackle part of this program, how they're going to put – money and time and effort into resources to put these people, some of these people get be their village literally and help them get back on their feet. So that'll be what we do on our next episode. We look forward to talking with you then until next time. This has been pocket law talks. See ya.